0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Talk Talks. I'm Anthony Burton, here to present an episode featuring a conversation between B. Kwame and Denim Jolly. It was recorded live Friday, April 7th, 2017, at the Toronto Public Library, Yorkville Branch. Denim Jolly is a Jamaican-Canadian civil rights activist, broadcaster, and author of In the Black, My Life, an autobiographical account of his attempts to launch Canada's first black-owned radio station, Flow 93.5. The book traces Denham's personal and professional struggle for place in a country where black Canadians have faced systemic discrimination. He arrived from Jamaica to attend university in the mid 1950s and worked as a high school teacher before going into the nursing and retirement home business. Though he was ultimately successful in his business ventures, Jolly faced both overt and covert discrimination, which led him into social activism. The need for a stronger voice for the black community fueled Jolly's 12-year battle to get a radio license for Flow 93.5, and it's now a model for urban music stations across the country. Jolly's book tells the story of both himself and a generation of activists who worked to reshape the country into a more open and just society, while still measuring the distance Canada has to travel before we reach our stated ideals of equality. Bee is a writer, communications specialist, and media commentator based in the Toronto area. Her writing has been featured in Vice, HuffPost, The Globe and Mail, Chatelaine, and more. She can also be seen on the screen most recently as a Viewpoints commentator on CBC's The National. She also publishes two blogs, 83 to Infinity, which focuses on anything from natural hair care to wellness to race and culture, and The Brown Sugar Mama, which focuses on motherhood from the perspective of a black Canadian Jamaican mom. A bit of a forewarning, the audio here is a bit choppy, but uh, we've done what we can to triage it and get rid of some of the low-level background stuff, and I do think you'll think it's worth it to tough it out. Without further ado, here's Denim Jolly in conversation with B. Kwame.
1: I've always said uh, I'm not not so sure why anyone would be interested in my life, but uh, here we are. And I'm grateful that you are and that you're present. This book is a biography and a manifesto. It also speaks to tenacity of purpose while giving an insight into personal experiences of racism. I received a a letter from someone yesterday who lives in the United States, who is a Canadian, who worked for many years as a U.S. civil rights worker in the Deep South. And uh, they alluded to the fact that they did not really know about the racism in Canada, even though they were so concerned about it in the South. And uh, the thought occurred to me that, uh, you know what, that's true. There are a lot of uh, Canadians that are not aware of it, but... I also wonder, how can this be when we look at the First Nations? How could we not be aware when we look uh, at the average life expectancy of an Aboriginal, the average income, the average literary rate, the uh, supply of potable water on reservations, child mortality rate, the employment rate of Aboriginals? How can we not be aware that there's something wrong? I think those things says it all. So here, here we go. I'll read for you my introduction to the book? Chapter one, In the Lion's Den. When you're black in Canada, the arrival of the police on the scene is not always or even often reassuring. Three years ago, on Parliament Street in Toronto's Cabbage Town neighborhood, not far from where I live, I had a fender bender I was exchanging insurance information with the other driver when a police officer came to take charge of the situation. There was nothing really for him to do, that he told me that I should call a tow truck or get my car towed away. I told him very politely that it wasn't a problem. The car was only dented, and I could easily drive it to the garage, but he insisted. When I balked, he immediately escalated. You have to get a tow truck, he said. I found this incomprehensible, Towing a car away when it only had a dent. But the officer looked at me contemptuously. What do I have to do to make sure you do it? Put a gun in your face? For a moment, I could not believe my ears. A threat like that made so casually on a busy Toronto street. I was in my late 70s and my first thought was, what if I had been a black kid in his 20s? Would he have threatened to draw his gun or simply have done so? Far too often in Toronto's recent history, that had been the case. And dozens of black kids had been killed that way. That, tort- that thought angered me. But I was not seeking a confrontation. I said nothing. I called it torture. But I did not want to let the matter pass. I filed an official complaint with the department. I made it clear that I wasn't asking that the officer be fired, but that he received some kind of counseling to address his threatening behavior before someone was hurt. I believe the exact word I used, detective, was I think he has to get some serious attitude adjustment. Home remedies is not going to work. Those were my exact words. At first, the department brushed aside my complaint with the excuse that the officer was already in trouble for other indiscretions and he was about to be charged. This turned out to be untrue. I complained and appealed all the way to the chief of police, Bill Blair. Their own department's investigation showed that the officer had his body speaker off during the confrontation. Not only that, but the police report said he had three different stories. They believed him anyway, but he denied saying those words. The verdict was clear. We can't substantiate claim. I did get to see the police report, however, and the opening phrase told me everything I needed to know what was behind the incident. The report began with the complainant, a 77-year-old Jamaican immigrant. (laughs) At the time, I had lived in Canada more than 55 years. Longer than the officer had been alive. And I had been a citizen for almost 50 years. A citizen. If I had been a white man, my origins would have been irrelevant. But a black man, by definition, had to be identified as the other, not as someone who had been a Canadian for half a century. I was forever a Jamaican immigrant. This is why we could threaten to put a gun in my face and then lie about it. Who would believe a Jamaican immigrant? So part of my story is about Canada's uncomfortable struggle with blackness, which I experienced that day on Parliament Street and on thousands of other occasions. This is a reality in Canada. Even though the first black in Canada, Matthew Costa, arrived with Samuel de Champlain in the St. Lawrence River and translated for him with the McMacks in 1603, 400 years ago. Blacks were prevented from settling in Canada in any great numbers until well into the 1970s. And that legacy of exclusion continues today. I arrived on a student visa two decades before the immigration gates were opened to any degree. I am today, even though I visit Jamaica often, thoroughly Canadian. But I hope it will not disappoint my white Canadian friends, of which I have many, when I say I am not one of those those who unrelentingly sing the praises of my adopted country. Despite meeting many nice people, I discovered when I arrived in Canada that it was unapologetic and insistently a white country with a tiny black minority kept at a fairly... 0.02% of the population, and largely assigned to jobs as domestics for women and railway porters for men. Things have improved, of course, and the fight to make a, a better Canada is part of the story I'm telling here. But Canada still has a distance to go before it lives up to its ideals. This is a story of progress made, as well as the challenges remaining. My journey is the journey of a Jamaican who left his country at the age of 20, and who has been part of the evolution of Canada since 1955. Now, as I have entered my 80th year, I would like to lay down a record of my personal experiences and recount something of the black struggle in Canada in the last half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. Along the way, I would like to introduce readers, black and white, to some remarkable women and men that I've had the privilege of knowing and often fighting alongside over the past many decades. These black Canadians are important for our people to know because they are part of our inspiring legacy in this country. They are important for white people to know because they worked, often in opposition to governments and enforcement bodies to make Canada a better place and a more just country. This is an opportunity for you to get to know them and for the white reader to better get to know black Canada. This, I believe, is essential if we are truly to build a harmonious society together. You'll notice, though, that I do not say get to know each other. Because the fact is, we black Canadians already know white Canada very well. We have to. We know you the same way that the hare knows the lion from following its every move, and for the same reason, survival. Because in certain circumstances, you can be dangerous to us. My hope is that when you, the white reader, let yourself know us in a more profound way, you will become a little more human and a little less the lion in your dealings with us. So I welcome all of you, black and white and all my brothers and sisters of other races all to accompany me on my journey into our collective past. My story is largely a Canadian one because it is Canada where I built a life. First as a student, then as a high school teacher, and finally as a businessman and media owner and activist. But it begins in a little village in Hanover Parish in Jamaica. At a time when Britannia still ruled the waves and most of her small blue planet. Thank you.
2: All right, thank you for that, Mr. Jolly. That was thank you. That was when I read the book and read that first chapter. I was just like, all right, I'm in for something. In for something, so that got me excited. So I personally really enjoyed that intro to the book. A word you mentioned in your intro is a word that I thought of reading throughout your whole story, and that's the word tenacity. And you've shown that in the story and just through your life for people who know you in so many different ways from your journey from Jamaica to Canada, back to Jamaica, back to Canada, through your various careers, through your activism... And even with the story that you told of your police encounter in the beginning, um, it made me think about a story that my husband told me in the similar area where he works, where he was running to catch the bus after work and a police cruiser jumped the curb and said he looked suspicious because he was running. And uh, you know the bus was waiting for him because the bus saw him running, but the police wouldn't let him go. So the bus took off after everybody on the bus was kind of just watching to see what was going on. The police are up on the curb and, you know, the two officers are out apprehending this young black man. And I remember when he came home, he got home late because of that. And I said, where were you? So he told me the story and I said, "Okay, so what are we doing about it? And he said, what's the point? We're not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to do anything about it. This happens all the time. So when I read your story and the incident you mentioned, I had a conversation with him about, pushing through and trying to make a difference and even for yourself to be able to know that you've gone as far as you can go with whatever the issue is that's facing you. But what I wanted to ask you just to start off is, in any instance in your life, where has, have you drawn your tenacity from? What has pushed you to be able to break through barriers and to continue and to persevere the way you have so, so many times?
1: I guess uh, I've always had a strong confidence in myself. I think maybe it started uh, with the way my parents carried on and uh, instilled in me uh, a certain amount of Mm self-worth, and uh, also from sports. Mm -hmm. In sports, uh, we were thought, don't give up. Even if you went out there today and you lost to another athlete, Mm -hmm. all it takes is a little more training to beat that guy. And that was the case. I mentioned the super the last Super Bowl and the tenacity there. Twenty eight points down in the third quarter, I mean everybody would have given up.
2: Oh, don't remind me. That was but
1: painful. <laughs> <laughs> but the Patriots, of whom I'm not a fan, they didn't give up. They believed in themselves. Right. And I think believing in yourself that whatever adversity it is, you can overcome it. I think that's where it starts. Mm-hmm to have a strong belief in oneself that you can do it, I can do this.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, the uh, sports thing is huge, I think, and I remember those analogies you mentioned in the book. And, and I think, too,
1: that's the reason why, why it took us 12 years to get a radio license and three attempts. Mm-hmm. And uh, even from the first attempt, we said, we're well, we, we not going to let him give up. <laughs> uh, in fact, I remember in one of the uh, applications at the hearing, at one of the hotels in Toronto, uh, one of the uh, commissioners asked us to back up some figures. Well, our uh, numbers man was not there because he's a professional. He he was away at his job. And um, we couldn't present it right away. And at lunchtime, our lawyer, our high-paid lawyer, came to me and said, well, you know, we're going to have to give up this thing because we can't get what they want. And I told him, no blood away. And I myself, instead of the lawyer, went to the commission's lawyer and said, look, this is the situation. And she said, that's okay, bring it tomorrow. So, and you can't let other people influence you and be uh, subject to other people's whims.
2: You've got to stick to your own mind. And Absolutely. That. Now, one of the other things you mentioned, we talked about this on the phone the other day when we were chatting, is, and you read it, that portion that I'm going to reference, where you talk about the idea of Black Canada and White Canada as the hare and the lion, and the idea that we know the lion very well. So your point that you made very clear about not saying we need to get to know each other, but that our partners in this community need to get to know us a little bit better... You put some thoughts that I've had into words in a way that I've never been able to put in words before. So with the way that you had stated that, I thought, okay, I've got to write this down, put it on a T-shirt, do something, because this is what is going to be able to help me to explain how I feel about certain things when we have discussions around racism and race relations. What it also made me think about is the idea of allyship and supporters, um, non-black people, white people, and other non-black folks who... uh, want to support black liberation and black humanity in Canada. And I'm just wondering what you think as far as how you've seen that in, in your life, how you see that now. Do you feel that we are gaining better support from our allies, that people are beginning and starting to try to know us better? Or do you feel that there's still a lot of work to do in that, in that realm?
1: I think there's a lot of work to be done, but I think we have come, uh, we have made a great, great progress as far as, as that goes. And um, we would not have made it without white people and without their alliances and without their generosity, mm-hmm. uh, so we need alliances. I mean uh, all oppressed people need need uh, alliances. Mm-hmm. but um, about the other question, I have often said, yeah i'm like the the lion I'm like the hare in in the in the forest. I have to." know which way the wind is blowing. So I don't go downwind from him because I can't let him know I'm here. I always have to figure out where he is and be one step ahead. And in all my time in Canada, I have had to get into the psyche. I have always said to to white people, not in a mean way, but in probably a revealing way, I know you more than you know yourself because (laughs) your life has never depended on knowing me. My life has always depended on knowing you. So... I was commuting to one of my places one day and I called my bank manager and he said to me, he heard the noise, the rumble, where are you calling from? I said, oh, I'm calling from my car. Oh, you have a car phone? And right away I know he didn't like it. (laughs) He did not like it. (laughs) (laughs) And I know you know what? This gentleman doesn't like you having a car phone because he doesn't have one. And you're going to have to take measures. Prepare for it. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, I diversified my banks, and it wasn't two months later that he called me up with some finagling of the funds to say I was overdrawn. And uh, I better bring some money by 3 o'clock or he's going to send about my checks. And I was ready for him. because I, I just knew he was going to pull something because he didn't like my success. From, from, just from his tone, you have a car phone? I knew that was my tip-off. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna bring your goddamn money by three o'clock and show you I'm more of a man than you are and hung up the phone in his ears. But I just knew
3: Mm -hmm.
1: because I just knew.
2: (laughs) No, I I totally hear you. It's funny because I've had a similar instance recently. So um, I work a regular nine to five as well. And when I did my first CBC segment, I didn't tell anybody because I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I didn't see the final edited version, so I didn't want to broadcast it. And then I looked terrible, sounded terrible. So I just let it go. It aired on a Tuesday night and on the Wednesday, I got a bunch of emails from folks at work, people coming by my cubicle. And one of the directors came over and goes, oh, so you got on CBC, eh? Who, who do you know there? And I said, well, I don't know anybody. They came to me. Oh, what makes you so special? There you go. And since then, there's always been a weird yeah. vibe around, oh, well, she's not just in the cubicle here doing what she needs to do, but she's on CBC talking about Black History Month and family caregivers and all of these other things. So that story that you're telling is something that I think is relevant to so many of us. And it goes back to your idea of having to be a step ahead and, and prepare which I wasn't prepared for. I was just worried about what I was going to look like on CBC. But I wasn't prepared for what the, uh, you know, the remarks and the response would be on a different level. But I think that that very well speaks to your example Well, of that. well
1: you know, um, it's painful for me to say it. And it's painful for the recipient to hear it. Uh, but this is a time for soul searching and uh, mm-hmm. coming to grips with reality. My experience has been that um, being a, what I consider successful black man, a lot of white people will be your friend as long as you're not an equal.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: The minute you drive that Lexus in your driveway, it's a different ballgame. Mm-hmm. They cannot handle you as an equal. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of people can't. But some can, and some will help you to get there. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a very important fact that I have noticed that A lot of white people will nurture you, they'll befriend you until you pull out that uh, flat screen TV or that Lexus. Mm -hmm. It's a different attitude.
2: And I'm wondering if, just thinking about that on a different level as well, where even within our own black communities sometimes and thinking about the idea of survival, there are some people who will say, well, I'm not going to get the Lexus. I'm not going to get the flat screen TV because they're thinking ahead and saying, that's going to put me in a position that's going to make it awkward with my white counterparts. And then when they see somebody else in the black community doing it, there's a resentment that this person decided to go ahead and fly in the face of what they think is proper, and they feel even further tampered down, I guess, by the whole idea of equality. So I don't know if you've ever had that resentment even within your own community for your success.
1: Well, uh, well very much so. In, in fact... Uh There's a psychological term called crabs in a barrel, where if you put a bunch of crabs in a barrel, in essence, trap them there. Sometimes, if you try to climb out, the ones that are left behind will pull you back down. Mm -hmm. And that's a sociological, whatever, uh, phenomenon. Crabs in a barrel. You'll hear sociologists talk about it,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: where people prevent their colleagues from succeeding. Mm -hmm. The crab that tries to climb out and go over would be pulled back by some college.
3: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. So switching gears just a little bit, um, one of the other things that blew me away with the book was the wealth of history that you covered. And this is just your life. So for you, these are just people you knew, organizations you were a part of or that you founded, work that you were doing. This is just your life. But for me to read about all of these people you knew and these organizations that I've never heard of. And we were talking the other day and I mentioned um, Howard McCurdy and mentioned that I'm originally from London, Ontario. And when I read that this man who was a second black MP was from London, Ontario and was kind of a radical and had these different things going for him, and I've never heard this man's name in my life. Thinking about also... Rocky Jones, who was kind of termed Canada's Stokely Carmichael, and organizations like the Black United Front that was kind of based off of the Black Panther movement. I've never heard about any of these people or any of these organizations and institutions. And so you gave me a whole list of things that I need to Google and do some further research on. But there's such a risk in not having that history passed down and, and for black youth, black Canadians, and all Canadians really to know about this wealth of history that has been so hidden away. So I don't know what you think about ways that we can remedy that. And how can we, aside from me telling everybody to read your book,
3: yeah. <laughs> but
2: aside from that, what how, what do you think we can do to make sure that these names stay alive and these legacies stay alive and that people in my generation and, and younger come up knowing about these names and, and about the work that had been done decades before?
1: Well, you have to try as best you can to pass it the, by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. I know in the black community in Africa, for example, there were uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there were what they called griots?
2: The griots, yeah. Those, mm-hmm. r-
1: those were the people that pat- handed down stories from generation to generation. And But now, uh, nowadays, we have to uh, chronicle it. We have mm-hmm. to write about it, talk about it, disseminate it as much as we can. In fact, when we formed the Black Business and Professional Association here in Toronto, was to give uh, the black community, a lift. And the athletes had done so well in the Commonwealth Games, we thought we would honour them. Also, by honouring them, present the rest of the society to make presentations to them and talk a little bit about them so people would get to know eminent black people. The head of surgery at Toronto Eastern General, people like Howard McCurdy, who was president of the Science University professors at Assumption University, now Windsor. University, to let him know that here was Dr. McCurdy, who was head of the science department at Windsor University, mm-hmm. and so on, because we had uh, many brilliant people among us. And we have to not be afraid to uh, blow our own horn mm-hmm. and present. I, you're quite right, because it was three weeks, it was, uh, I went to this movie just over here at the Manulife Center about a month ago of Hidden Figures. Mm-hmm. I went to three different universities in Canada. I went to high school. I never heard about these black female uh, uh, mathematicians that John Glenn or whoever said, I'm not going up unless B does by my numbers because there were no computers. I never heard a word about it until quite recently. How could that be mm-hmm. when everybody looks to the skies? So there is, I have to say, a conscious effort to uh, conceal some of this, because if you ask a lot of Canadian kids right now about Matthew de Costa, who translated for Samuel Champagne and Saint Lawrence with the Micmacs, they never heard about him. If you ask them where did the term "the real McCoy" come from, not a lot of people know that the real McCoy was a black man. And there's so much, so much other history of that. So much that blacks have contributed to this country.
2: Mm-hmm. And just kind of piggybacking off of that, because you mentioned the Black Business Professional Association and um, other things that I had read about in the book as far as black institutions, black-owned media, like the Contrast paper that you spoke of, um, the BBPA, some of those different organizations, even with Flow, even having Flow itself as a radio hub and a broadcasting hub for... um, diverse stories, but particularly Black voices and Black stories. And we talked about this a little bit briefly, but through all of your work that you've done through publishing, through broadcasting, all of that with creating these spaces and within your activism as well, those are very valuable and those are mechanisms that we can use to keep this history alive. But from my perspective, I feel that we don't have that range of Black-owned or Black-focused media here. And you had mentioned in our conversation before that leadership, you think, is part of that and having the right type of leadership. But I'm just wondering if you can speak to where you see those roles playing now or what we can do to kind of improve that and create some more of those spaces for ourselves to be able to share those stories and share those histories as well.
1: Well, uh, I believe there's one high school now, a black high school. I'm I'm not sure how much history they teach in it. Mm -hmm. But... Again, we have to be proud of what we've accomplished and disseminate it as much as we can. Um, the thing is, as is often said, the, uh, the guy who writes the history, mm-hmm. he controls the dialogue. And we, we can't allow other people to write our own our history. We have to write our own history, and we have to take responsibility for disseminating our own history, or else it will never get done. And you can't blame anyone for that. Mm-hmm. You know, It's our responsibility. And um, the younger people have to be made aware of who they are, where they came from, get out of this uh, celebrity culture, and um, start uh, respecting and honoring real people. Mm-hmm. Because half of these celebrities are empty. you know. And we have among us some of the greatest roses blushing on scene. Mm-hmm. And we have to project it. If we don't project it, no one else is going to do it for us. Right. And as far as leadership go, we have to uh, train, train new leaders. Even in huge businesses, there's a uh, succession. Even the Queen of England has a line of succession. <laughs> so we have to uh, train new leaders to take up that role mm-hmm. and carry the mantle, pass the torch, and uh, be griots and, and tell these stories and perpetuate them. Tell them to your younger people. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. And I think speaking to to people in general is very common among us. That when we're younger and the knowledge is there amongst our elders, we don't ask them. We're afraid, we're reluctant, and then pretty soon they're gone. And then you you go to Google and whatever, but guess what? No one can pass on that story as good as your grandmother or your grandfather. So, we have to find out what we can now and, and about our own history and about a history of our uh, of our race or whatever everybody is proud of their uh, their history you know you never people never stopped drinking green beer a couple of months ago. you know <laughs> Irish are proud of their history you know so we every everyone has to do that because it gives you a, a feeling of self worth to know where you 're coming from. it helps you to determine where you 're going. Mm-hmm.
2: I think that's a good point to end at. And last but not least, thank you to Mr. Jolly for living and being able to write about it in such an eloquent way and doing so much more to illuminate uh, the past and the present and the future for so many of us. So I think this is definitely going to be part of your legacy that is just never going to go away. And
1: I'm honoured to have the pleasure to speak with you. So thank you. Thank you very much, V And thank you, Michael. Uh And thank you for coming.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Talk Talks with Denim Jolly and B. Kwame. The episode was recorded live at the Toronto Public Library's Yorkville branch on April 7th, 2017, where Denim talked about his book In the Black, My Life. The conversation was produced by Michael Booth and Helen Walsh, and this episode of the podcast was produced by me, Anthony Burton. Make sure to stay up to date with Talk Talks to keep up with the conversation. You can follow us at TalkWriting, that's T-O-K-Writing on Twitter, and uh, the magazine is at TalkMagazine.ca. Thanks for listening.